Luis Palau tells a story many years ago. There was a wealthy family wanted to dedicate their child, their new baby, and they planned to do it at their house, planned to do it at their big palatial mansion. They invited dozens of people to come, and in they came. And for hours, they entertained them. When they when they came in, they would uh, they deposited, they took off their fancy furs and their coats and everything, and piled them over on the bed. Had a great time dancing all around. And then the then the the time came for the baby's dedication, and they couldn't find the baby. The governess looked all around, went upstairs, went downstairs, came back with a panicked look on her face. It says, I can't find him anywhere. And they all looked around, and some person finally remembered that they had seen the baby on the bed. So they rushed up to the bed, and there the baby was, underneath all the furs and coats and, and stuff that they had thrown on the bed before their party began. True story. I wonder, isn't it amazing how the very object of their celebration was buried beneath their rich coats and all their pomp and circumstance? So easy to compare that, isn't it, to the season in which we're now living. Christmas is a two-edged sword. It's a wonderful time to reflect on why Jesus Christ was sent to us And yet it's also an incredible time of distraction and frustration as our busyness increases and the reflection gets harder and harder to do. It's easy as we overeat, overdrink, overspend, oversleep to also overlook what we're all about here at Christmas. Christmas, first and foremost, is about Christ. Before, it's about toys or tinsel, or trees, and all the trappings. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I'd like for us just to take, devote this brief time here together, to slow down, and to stop. You don't have to buy a gift in the next half hour. You don't have to decorate a tree. You don't even have to talk to anybody else. But you just get to sit, and reflect with me, on the true meaning of Christmas. This may be the only time this whole season we get to do it. So, let's enjoy it. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Malachi. Malachi. We're including in our Christmas season, the Route 66 series, because as we end the Old Testament, actually we're not ending it today, though Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. We skipped Haggai, and we'll come back to him next week because it worked well with New Year's. But we're fitting it in because Malachi works well with the Christmas message, because Malachi, the prophet, talks about, looks forward to the time of Christmas, in which we get to enjoy right now. Malachi's name means my messenger. So it's kind of neat, as we look in chapter 3, Malachi 3, that the words, my messenger, are there in the first verse, as two people are promised to be sent of the Lord. Let's look together at this prophecy that is fulfilled in the season we, we enjoy now. Malachi 3, starting in verse 1. 
The Lord says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Several wonderful prophecies or promises are given here. First, that the Lord will send a messenger. He will send my messenger, and his purpose is to clear the way. Malachi is kind of paraphrasing Isaiah, who talks about the fact that when a king would come to a land for the first time, or if a king had not been there in some time, he would send people on ahead who would go down the road and they would clear all the rocks and rubble out of the way so when the king comes, he'd have a straight shot. I read somewhere where uh, Queen Elizabeth was going to some country she'd never been to before, and they built a bridge just for the time that she happened to be going from this place to that. Months of preparation for a five-second journey across this bridge. But they would send people ahead of time to prepare the way so that when the king came, or when the royalty came, there would be a smooth walk or a smooth journey. And we're told, Malachi says, that God promises to send a messenger and his purpose is to get all the rocks and rubble out of the way, as it were, to prepare the way so that the Lord will have a a smooth journey or his way will be successful. Secondly, we're told that the Lord is going to suddenly appear in his temple. And I want you to notice in this verse the way the the word Lord is written. See, the first time there in the third line at the end, You have Lord, capital L, small O-R-D. But then down here at the bottom left, the second time, is capital L and then small caps O-R-D. And what our English text has done here is by using the same word but by giving it different font um, is, is differentiating between two words that are in the original language. The first one with the small, the small letters, uh, is the word for master. It's the word for Lord, of course, but it's also the word for master. It can be not only speaking of God, but also it can be speaking of a human. The last Lord here, in all caps, and whenever you see that throughout your Bible, um, it, it means the divine name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so what's neat about this is, is the Lord is saying, I'm going to send a messenger, he's going to clear the way before me. And the Lord will come to his temple. And notice H is capitalized, his temple. So we've got the divine name, we've got Yahweh talking about a Lord who's going to come, who's somehow different from him, and yet who is him. This must have been, I think, very confusing in the the Old Testament for someone to read this without a knowledge of what we understand as the Trinity, that the Lord Jesus Christ is separate from God the Father, and yet they are both, along with the Holy Spirit, one God. And you have that that kind of brought out here, hinted in the different ways that the word Lord is used. And this Lord, whom we're told, will uh, he is the messenger of the covenant, and he's one in whom they delight. He is one whom they seek which is fascinating because Malachi is written during a time of Israel's history where Israel is pretty much doing what they wanted to do. Even though they come back in after being spanked 
through 70 years of exile. Now they're back in the land. They got their temple going. Everything's looking great. And like we do when things are prosperous and successful, generally we forget God, which is what they did. And so Malachi was sent to kind of stir the nation up and say, hey, I'm, God says, hey, I'm going to send these, this messenger to get you ready because, implication, you're not. You're not ready. And yet, even though they're not ready, even though they're in sin, God says that you desire, you delight in the Lord, and you seek the Lord. How can that be possible? I think we see the same thing today in our society, very clearly. I, uh, I read last week, last Sunday, in fact, near Pittsburgh, somebody took a Jesus doll from a nativity scene a couple in Pittsburgh had a nativity scene in their front yard, and somebody came and stole the Jesus doll out of it. What kind of person would steal a Jesus doll from a nativity? But th- these, they did it, and the people put in their front yard a sign that says, Who stole Jesus? Not long after that, they got a letter, an anonymous letter, and this is what it says. I kidnapped the baby Jesus doll from your front yard, and I'm not giving it up until the kid's dad allows me to win the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a delay there because you realize what he's talking about is the kid's dad, meaning God. Yeah, I'm going to keep baby Jesus until God makes me win the lottery. Well, build on a spare room then, because it may be a while. How's, why would God honor someone that kidnapped baby Jesus? But anyway, <laughs> what is amazing to me about this story is I'm, this, this gives us a, an illustration of what we do every day. And then I'm amazed at how we will look everywhere but the obvious for the fulfillment of our desires. The guy thinks that winning the lotto is the answer to his desires when he's stolen what represents the answer to his desires. We will look in our lives to our work for significance. That's where we derive our self-esteem from our work. We'll look to our money to give us security. If we've got plenty of money in the bank, we're secure. We'll look to sex to give us pleasure, as if that's the only thing that can actually satisfy in this life. We'll look to another human being, perhaps a spouse, perhaps a friend, for happiness. And what's amazing is when we look to all these things for our fulfillment, how we continually end up so unsatisfied. Isn't it amazing how we are always so unsatisfied, never content with what we have, always got to be more. And then when you get more, it's still got to be just a little bit more. Isn't it amazing? And I think this happens is because the reason we have unfulfilled dreams and desires in this life, even as believers, of course, unbelievers are constantly seeking, constantly seeking They're seeking Jesus Christ, but they don't know it. They're seeking the fulfillment of all their dreams. They seek it here, they seek it there, and it doesn't satisfy. The only thing it satisfies ultimately in every area of life is Jesus Christ. And I think that many of us as believers still struggle as well because we've bought into our culture, and our culture tells us that the only thing that satisfies is to get more. Or that there is some delusion that if you just get more, you'll be satisfied. And we've bought into that delusion. And we remain, by and large, unsatisfied. And finally, Malachi says, 
He's coming. In this verse, he says he's coming. The, the Lord whom you seek, the Lord in whom you delight, he is coming. He is coming. And it's wonderful how the last book in our Old Testament has these words in anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's a great summary of the whole Old Testament. You look at the whole Old Testament pointing forward to saying, He is coming, He is coming, He is coming. And then Jesus comes, and the New Testament looks back and says, He came, He came. And here's the significance of it. But you know what's also neat about the New Testament? As just as the Old Testament ended with the words, He is coming, so the New Testament ends with the words, He is coming. He's coming. In fact, they're Jesus' words in Revelation 22. I am coming again. And John's final words are, Great, come, Lord Jesus. We're ready. Both testaments end anticipating the coming of Christ. The first coming, of course, in the Old Testament, which is what the context is here. He is coming, he is coming, he is coming. This is what is anticipated. This is the hope of everybody's dreams. But notice verse 2. This kind of puts a wrinkle in it. He's coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. What's a fuller? A laundryman, right? I even had to look in my margin for that one. What's a fuller? Well, he's the guy that sits at the end of the table that's close to all the food, isn't it? He's fuller. No. This kind of a fuller is a guy that cleans clothes. What does a refiner do? A refiner makes metals more pure. And if you were to read on, we won't. We'll stop here for now. But he goes on to talk about how when the Messiah comes, he will refine and he will clean and so why is the question there, you, you got this great promise of his coming, and then he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The implication is nobody. And the reason is because when he comes, he will be like a refiner's fire. In other words, he will deal with what's impure. He will be like a fuller's soap. He will deal with what's unclean. You see, when the Messiah comes, he's going to deal with what's impure and what's unclean. So who's going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able to endure his coming? Nobody. Because nobody's pure and nobody's clean. And yet they want him to come. The whole chapter goes on and talks about this the refining business and this fuller's soap business, this of cleaning and impure, the impurities being drawn out and what the Messiah is going to do when he comes back. The whole chapter goes on to say that. The beginning of chapter 4 says that. But I want you to look at the end of chapter 4 now because what God does is he doesn't just leave them hanging saying he's coming and when he comes he's going to do some refining. He doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, yeah, he's coming, but it's kind of like, you know, you did something wrong and dad's coming home soon. That, that feeling, you know? Well, you know he's coming, but <laughs> do you really want him to come home? Because what's going to happen when he does? Instead of leaving you hanging like that in fear at his coming, you have the last two verses, the last two words of prophecy in the Old Testament. In chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the remedy is given. 
to this problem that no one can stand before the Messiah when he comes. And this is what God says. He says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, what's this business about the curse? Well, he's taken us back to what he said at the beginning of chapter 1. He says, when he comes, is anybody going to be able to stand? And if nobody's able to stand, the land gets a curse. So, as Malachi looks forward to the first Christmas here, he's basically saying, he'll be bringing a curse for Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Have a curse. Because nobody is able to stand before him. But yet here he gives us the way out. He gives us the thing that we are to focus on. And he, he says it here in verse 6 where he says that, he, that this one who is sent, this Elijah the prophet who will be sent, will, will restore the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to fathers. What does that mean? Or why is that significant? You think about, well, that's, that's nice, I mean, but what does that have to do with the curse of the land? Well, because here he's using the fathers and the children kind of as a figure of speech of representing everybody. Like uh, in parts of the Bible, you have a, a literary device called a, a mirrorism, where you have both extremes and it, and it implies everything in between. Like you have bookends and it implies the whole, everything in between. Like, for example, the, from the rising of the sun, the rising of the sun, the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Well, not just at the rising at the setting, but, but everything in between as well. It's not just the fathers and the children, or the children and the fathers, but everybody. And his point is that, that we're not just talking about restoring generation gaps, we're talking about restoring a spiritual gap. That what this Elijah is going to do is he's going to bring about a unified heart for everybody. You say, well, that can't, sounds like kind of a stretch. He's talking about fathers and, and children here. Well, okay, but the New Testament gives us that interpretation, which we'll look at in a little bit. But what I like so much about this, this verse, these two verses, is that it ends with the word curse. And, you know, traditionally, uh, whenever the Jewish nation reads this, whenever it read it, and even to today when it reads it, it doesn't end it there. It reads all of Malachi, comes down to the last word, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. And then they go back and read verse 5 again. Because we don't want to end with the word curse. They end with the good news of Elijah the prophet coming. We're not going to end with the word curse. Incidentally, they do the same thing in Isaiah, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. They all end too negatively. So we go back and we repeat something else so we don't have to dwell on the negative. Isn't it neat? Well, not neat. Isn't it interesting how the, the Old Testament begins in the garden with a blessing? God made this, God made this, God made this, and he blessed it. Said it's good, it's blessed it. Said it's good, blessed it. And then he ends the Old Testament with a curse. Begins it with a blessing, ends it with the promise of a curse. What's the implication there? That the whole Old Testament is unsatisfied. The whole Old Testament is unfulfilled. And there is still the problem that there was all the way back in the Garden of Eden, where the curse began. 
there's the anticipation of the curse continuing unless something is done. And that's why I think the key word here in this, in verses 5 and 6, pivots on the word lest. L-E-S-T, lest. Blessed little word. There ought to be a shaft of light from that word to heaven. Lest. Because what he is saying is, yeah, I could come and strike the land with a curse, but so that doesn't have to happen, I plan to send Elijah the prophet, who's going to do this restoration of heart. So you see, God here in his mercy is providing a remedy to this promised curse. But this, uh, this Elijah is very clearly John the Baptist. You have in the New Testament... Uh, Jesus himself saying in Matthew 11, just look at the screen, Jesus said, if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who is to come. If you care to accept it. In other words, there was a problem with it. Not everybody accepted this business about Elijah. And there was a big bunch of confusion about it. Some people thought Jesus was Elijah, because they saw him doing all these miracles. When Jesus was dying on the cross, remember he, he hollered out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word my God in Aramaic is Eli, and people thought, they said, he's shouting to Elijah. So there was a bunch of confusion about who this Elijah was. And Jesus, very clearly, his disciples asked him one time, why do people say that Elijah must come first? And they asked him about this business about Elijah. They asked him the problem that Malachi asks, or, or deals with, brings up. Elijah's got to come first. And so they ask him why. Look at the screen at this time that they asked him, and look at his answer. Matthew 17, verse 10. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Very clearly, John the Baptist is this promised Elijah who comes and who prepares the way. And he prepared the way by removing all the obstacles that might keep people from accepting the Messiah when he was presented to the nation. After 400 years of waiting, finally, John the Baptist comes on the scene when he sees Jesus Christ, he tells all of his disciples and he points and says, Look, see that guy? Behold, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John pointed to Jesus. And then John's disciples then became those who followed Jesus Christ. And it couldn't be clearer if you were to look a little further in the New Testament. Look at the screen at Luke 1. In fact, we'll even be in this, this section of Scripture tonight. Luke 1, at the birth of John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel says this. Uh, he says, verse 16, And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see how the angel kind of uh, elaborates here on Malachi? Because there was a lot of confusion during the day of who this Elijah is. They thought it was going to be the real Elijah come back. And which is interesting, when they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said, no. 
He didn't, he didn't bother explaining, well, I am, but not the way you think I am. Because they were asking, are you the real Elijah come back? And he said, no. Who are you? And he goes on to explain, he is the forerunner who will prepare the way. In other words, the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you see, the hearts, turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children has very little to do with the generational gap. It has everything to do with the spiritual gap, as is clearly said here. He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. So you see, if John's purpose was to get the people ready, the implication was they weren't ready. They weren't ready for the time that Jesus was coming. Now, let's take that principle, let's take it from the context of the first coming, and let's apply it to the context of Jesus coming again now. Because I think it's a timeless principle. To prepare for the coming of the Lord, what are we to do? Your preparation for the coming of Christ centers on the turning of your heart to God. Your preparation for the coming of Christ centers on the turning of your heart to God. You will not be prepared if your heart is not prepared. There's a true story overseas about <clears throat> a mother, actually an expectant mother, was uh, very close to delivering, in fact, was about to deliver, and she was trying to make it through a snowstorm to a friend of hers, house, a missionary lady who lived overseas, and, and this lady knew she'd be able to get help from this missionary. So she was making it, she was wandering through this blizzard on the way to the house, wasn't probably but a quarter mile from the house, and her labor began, her labor pains began, and she was able to crawl under a bridge under the road, and there between two trestles gave birth to her son. And she was so weakened by the delivery that she was unable to walk any further to the house. And of course she has, you know, her baby there. And all she had with her was her overstuffed coat. And she took it off and wraps her baby up with this coat and finds a piece of old burlap and puts it around her. And they snuggle there together in the, uh, to wait out the storm under this bridge. The next day, the missionary um, leaves the house and drives down to take some food to somebody, and on her way back, her Jeep runs out of gas right at the bridge, coincidentally. And she gets out, and she's walking back home, and she hears a baby crying, which is unusual. And so she goes down, she looks under the bridge, and she sees this mother laying there with her newborn. The baby's crying, hungry, warm, safe, but hungry. And she walks closer and she sees that the mother has frozen in the storm. So this missionary takes this little boy and raises it. Raises him and teaches him about the Lord Jesus. And all throughout his years as he's growing, she would share with him about his mother and how she essentially gave, gave up her life so that he might have life. And when this little boy was 12 years old, the 12th anniversary of his mom's death, he, uh, he asked to go to the grave. And as he walked to the grave, he asked to go there alone initially. And he was standing there at the grave, and of course, was just crying. He was praying. And this little boy did a very touching thing. He took his coat off and laid it there on his mom's grave. And then he took his shirt off 
And he laid it there in his mom's grave. And finally, this little boy has stripped everything off, this 12-year-old kid, and it laid it all over the ground of his mother's grave. And he just knelt there in the snow and started crying. And, of course, the missionary, the adopted mom, came over and, and you know, wanted to cover him up because it was snowing. And in the, in the whimpering and in the crying, she could hear what this little boy was, was saying to his mom. And he, he said, Were you this cold for me, my mother? Were you this cold for me? True story. You know, to think about that little boy honoring his mom and honoring the memory of his mom and being so moved by the sacrifice that she gave that he would himself do the same thing is touching. But even more so is when you think about the truth of how the Lord Jesus Christ, when he left heaven, to be born in a very inconspicuous place, not hardly fit for a king, to be born in a barn and laid in a feed trough. To lay his royal robes aside, as it were, and to enter into a world of hatred and cold indifference. To live a life that's perfect, to die a death that was guiltless on our behalf, so that any who would place their faith in him might have their sins forgiven. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. I saw a, uh, a cartoon some time ago. Actually, it was probably a couple of years ago. Calvin and Hobbes, of course, it's great. Melting snowmen because the spring is coming. And the snowmen say, repent, sinners. The end is near. Spring is coming. And Calvin says, they're snowmen, prophets of doom. And the mom says, you certainly take the pleasure out of waiting for daffodils. There's nothing like somebody with bad news, is it? You know, he's looking back and saying, oh, the, the snowmen are, are dying, pro- prophesying doom. And in a sense, that's kind of how I feel as we look at Malachi uh, today for Christmas. It's almost like Malachi is serving up a curse for Christmas. Here, Jesus is, Jesus is coming. When he comes, nobody's going to be able to stand. Merry Christmas, here's your curse. And yet there's also that little word, lest. That he promises to send, not just the Christ who will come and potentially curse, but he also promises to send the messenger who will go before the Christ to get everybody ready so that when he does come, he doesn't have to strike the land with a curse. That the people will be ready. Now, that was the first coming. But you know what? The same principle is also true for the next go-around. The preparation for the coming of Christ centers. It did then and it does now on the turning of your heart to God. So if you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, realize all you have to look forward to is a curse. All you have to look forward to is condemnation. Lest you turn and place your faith in the one to whom John the Baptist, the forerunner, the Elijah pointed and said, look, the one who takes away the sin of the world. He points to Jesus, unless you place your faith in Jesus. What if you have placed your faith in Christ? So what about this for you? I think the same principle applies in that the coming of Christ focuses. We ought to center on our turning of our hearts to the Lord. I find it interesting as John the Baptist preached to a nation who said that they had repented. He told them to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. 
In other words, repentance is the idea of changing your mind, or belief, really, is what it means. And John says, your actions match that. John came to prepare the road to get all the obstacles out of the way so that when Christ came, there would be a clear shot, a clear relationship, opportunity there. I think the same is true even still for those of us who are Christians. What is it in your life that is a rock in the road that if Jesus were to come today, he'd have to walk around it? What is it in your life that is an obstacle that may have deep, deep roots right in the middle of the road that needs to be uprooted and moved before the Lord comes. Not so you'll go to heaven or hell, but so that you can present to the Lord a life of faithfulness and a life of obedience. I think we've all got those obstacles. In our heart of hearts, we know that part of our heart that we're keeping for ourselves and we're not letting Jesus have. Be it, the, be it our money, be it our pride, whatever it is, let it be uprooted. Let it be taken away. You know, just as that 12-year-old kid disrobed to honor the sacrifice of his mother and in some sense did what his mother did when he asked, were you this cold for me? So we are to do what our Lord did when he gave of himself and died for us. As he tells us, take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. That's how we can prepare for the coming of Christ, to turn our hearts afresh to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for Christmas and the opportunity that our culture, even our culture has, to think about Jesus Christ. Lord, we have a special claim on him. We are able, as believers in him, to look at Christmas totally apart from the trees and the tinsel and all of the, all of the hoopla. We are able to come right down to the core issue that we were facing a curse if it were not for the first Christmas. Malachi promised a curse because none of us could stand on our own. And so I pray today, Lord, for the one here facing that curse, facing the condemnation. I pray that they'd place their faith in you, the one to whom John the Baptist pointed, who takes away the sins of the world. And Lord, for myself and for the believers here before me, we all want to present to you a heart of wisdom. We all want to present to you a heart of faithfulness. And I pray that you'd strengthen us today to look honestly at ourselves and our lives and the obstacles we have allowed to be placed in the road that need to be moved, that our relationship with you might be unhindered. And so, Lord, we thank you. You have provided the gift that has taken away the curse that the first Christmas brought. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my gift to you is letting you out ten minutes early. You will beat the Baptist to Lubies. See you later. <laughs>